may be seated. Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from your sister church, Cornerstone, down in Brighton. Our sanctuary there uh, was, took the plans from this sanctuary and used it as the blueprint for ours. So walking in here this morning, I feel like I'm walking back into home in a sense. It looks very similar. So what a pleasure to be here. And I was just reminded, actually, as I was walking in, that the day that I came before Presbytery to be uh, examined for ordination, which is where you stand up just like this and you have, like, I don't know, 100 or so pastors can ask you anything they want, uh, was the very same day that they bought, uh, brought Pastor Scribner forward uh, to be the pastor of this church. Um, and I have to say that the words that were mentioned about him there and what I've heard about him and my interactions with him since have all shown to be very true. You are, in my opinion, uh, very lucky to have Pastor Scribner as your pastor, and I feel very privileged that he asked me to come and share God's word with you this morning. We are going to be reading, uh, our passage is from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, and I'm not sure what your practice is here, but if you would indulge me, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Ramiathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Pananah. And Pananah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Padanah his wife and to her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, 
And the God of Israel grant your petition that you made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Although the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, from whom all blessings flow, Jesus our Lord, our great Redeemer, and Holy Spirit, who has reconciled us to the Father through the Son, I pray, God, that now you would fill this sanctuary with your presence. I pray that you would attend the preaching of your word such that it would penetrate the hearts of those who listen, that they would have ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray because of our encounter with you, myself included, we would leave different people We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are all different. Just like there are no two snowflakes that are the same, there are no two fingerprints that are the same. We all come from different backgrounds. We have different heredities, different genetic makeups, different characters. We all have different parents. We have different life experience. We grew up in different households. Some of us grew up in households where the parents stayed together. Some of us grew up in households where there was divorce. Sometimes they were divorced early or late. The point is that we we have different life experience. And because of that, we all see and interpret the world differently. We all see and interpret the world differently. If I was to have a screen here and was to show a short clip, have you seen those uh, commercials, the insurance commercials where people, there's an accident, they show an accident happening, and they've got that down to a science somehow so that now when you're watching that commercial, it's like you're really there and experiencing it. Have you seen those commercials? And at the end of it, you know, you have to rush out and buy the insurance. But the, the two people are speaking and they, they see nothing, but out of the corner of their eye, you see, they don't see it, but you see a big truck coming right at them, and they're just having this nice conversation, then boom, there's this big accident. Now, if I was to show that clip in here, people, each one of you, would experience that a little bit different. How would you experience seeing that if you had just been in an accident yourself? How would you experience that if you lost a loved one in an accident? How would you experience that if you were a child and had never driven a car? How would you experience that if you were a truck driver or somebody who drove for a living? You would, you would see the very same thing, but you wouldn't experience it the same way. Do you see what I'm saying? And what we're learning about the way that the brain works and the way that we experience life is that there is this whole background to somebody's life. There's what you see on the surface, but then there's all this stuff that comes behind. And when you make decisions on a daily basis, 
throughout life, you are making decisions, more and more we realize, based on who you are and what has happened to you. You're not even really thinking about it. You ever see somebody who doesn't, like, doesn't, have, a, a, doesn't have a capacity, it seems, sometimes to show much emotion? Like they go through something and it's like they don't feel and somebody said, what's wrong with that person? What's wrong with him or her? What you don't know is that somewhere early in that person's life, they maybe experienced something incredibly traumatic. And they promised themselves, I'm never going to feel like that again. And so now when you see them, you see someone that won't feel. But you don't know that there's this whole history, this whole baggage, all this history to their life that makes them who they are. It's like being on the ocean. When you're on the ocean and you're going through cold water, you might come across an iceberg. When you see an iceberg, what you see on the surface is a very small amount of what is the total mass of an iceberg. Actually, on average, it's about 15%. So when you see an iceberg on the surface of the water, you're seeing about 15% of the total mass of what an iceberg is. Underneath the water, if you were in a scuba suit or something, you'd see the other 85% of what an iceberg is and its mass is. And in the same way, human beings, when you encounter a human being, you're encountering, and what you see is a, really a small portion of what that person really is. And what you don't realize, or what I don't realize, and what we don't realize, is that there's this whole backdrop of history and life experience that really makes them who they are, but it's unseen. It's like beneath the waters of the ocean, like an iceberg. And when two people encounter one another, you're encountering not only what you see on the surface, but you're actually encountering everything that's underneath as well. And when someone encounters you, they're not just encountering what they see on the surface, but they're encountering all that's underneath about you as well. And one place where you see this really played out in a dramatic way is when people get married. We have these... Um, Wedding anniversaries this morning, what a blessing to see these different life stages of people being married. Now, when you get married, let's say you go out on your first date. Uh, you typically look pretty good, right? You dress up, you smell great. You take your, if you're a guy, you know, you take the, the woman out or whatever the situation may be to a, a great restaurant, right? You show up with flowers and you're looking wonderful and you say all the right things. And then if you're a young lady or you're going out, you know, you're going to look great and you're going to say all the right things. But what happens when you get married? And you're sitting across, right, and you're looking at the, you know, having counseling or something like that, you know, with the past before you get married. And then you realize something, and if you don't realize it before you get married, you realize it after you get married, probably most of us, that you didn't just marry that 15% that you saw, the, the really good-smelling, nice person that said all the right things, right? People here are married, right? You're marrying all the other stuff about that person. It's not just the 15% that you see. It's the 85% of their past. We all have baggage, right? If you don't think you have baggage, you do. And your spouse is marrying all of your baggage. All of your family. That can be interesting, too. And you're marrying them. And all of their baggage, and all of their family, and all of their faults, and all their character. And that's rough. And sometimes it's rougher than others. I mean, it, it's tough. My own marriage has been rough. And what I've, well, it's great. I mean, my wife, I love her. She's wonderful. Wouldn't be married to anyone else. But we, it's been interesting. And what, you, what I found out, and probably what you found out by being married, is you really can't change people. People don't really change that much. 
So as people interact with each other, we realize that having deep relationship is hard. Deep relationship is hard. But we want to have it. You know, I lived in New York City for a year, and I was surrounded by millions of people and didn't have real deep relationship. And one thing our society has realized, rightly, is that pseudo-relationship is a bankrupt thing. So you can be on Facebook and you can have 1,500 friends or whatever and have no friends. You can have a million Twitter followers and you have no relationship. But we want relationship. I want relationship. And what we want to explore this morning is how do we have God-honoring, deep, authentic, that can be a slippery word, relationship with each other. And how can we enter into deep relationship with other people? Do we all recognize that we want that? Do we all recognize that's hard? So if you don't get anything from this morning, if you check out and go to sleep right now, just get this one thing from this morning. We enter into deep, authentic relationship with one another when we relate to each other in the way that Jesus relates to us. You enter into deep, authentic, thick relationship with other people when you relate to them when they relate to you in the way that Jesus relates to us. And we're going to explore that by exploring the life of Hannah and this encounter, that was this passage that we read, and her encounters, three different encounters that she has, two with two different men and one of her encounter with God, and see what we can learn about how we relate to one another. You with me? Are you with me? Sorry, I'm a jazz musician. I'm looking for response, you know. The first reaction that we're going to, uh, the first encounter that we're going to see is Hannah's encounter with Eli the priest. And we're going to call this way of relating, we're talking about ways that you relate to one another, a way of presumption. The way of presumption. Hannah comes into the tabernacle, the temple, and she is deeply, deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. This is not like, you know, my dog ate my homework on the way to school. She is to the core in pain because she is not able to have a child. I personally don't know what that's like, but I imagine there are some women here that maybe know what that feels like, to have this longing, this unfulfilled desire to have children. By the way, that's some way that can be very helpful sometimes when you talk to people say, I don't really get it, I don't know what you're going through. That can be very helpful sometimes. I don't know what Hannah quite was feeling, but I bet... There are some women here that probably do. And she's pouring out her heart before the Lord. And she's moving her mouth, right? But she's not saying anything. And Eli the priest sees her and makes a snap judgment about her. He sees her, her mouth is moving, she's obviously distressed. And he makes this judgment. And the judgment he makes on her is this. You do not belong here. You don't belong here. You need to get out. You are worthless. In fact, that's exactly how Hannah interpreted Eli's words. And she says, do not consider your servant, what? A worthless woman. So Eli doesn't have any idea who she is, doesn't know her name, just sees that 15% on the surface and presumes about her. You know, Jesus experienced this very same thing. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. Jesus liked to hang out with the wrong crowd. And the Pharisees 
come to, not Jesus, right? They're doing a nice passive-aggressive thing. They go to Jesus' disciples, and they say, Hey, your teacher, the rabbi, he's hanging out with the wrong people. He's hanging out with sinners. He's hanging out with tax collectors. And what the Pharisees were saying was, They don't belong here. They're worthless people. You need to go to Jesus and tell them to send them away. Well, Jesus hears about that. And what does Jesus say? We see this in Mark chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the question is, how do I, how do you, and how does this church maybe? I mean, I've never stepped foot into this church until this morning, so I'm not saying anything because, you know, I have any reputation. I'm just, just asking the question. How do we presume on people? How do I, how do we, how do you? You know, the church has done this in a lot of different ways in the past. The church has made this presumption based on skin color at times. You are worthless. You don't belong here. You need to get out. And if we think that's a thing of the past, even just this week, I met with an African-American woman who came into Cornerstone who was thinking about coming, who said she went to a church in Ann Arbor. It wasn't a Presbyterian church, but went to a church in Ann Arbor. It's right here in Michigan, right, right here in River City, and walked into the church, met a greeter who took a step back and said, may I help you? And she said that she was there to see a, a particular couple, and he said, well, can I go ask them something for you? The church, at least in that case, decided, based on the skin color of a woman, you don't belong here. Can we do that based on the wrong kind of dress? Can someone come in here on a Sunday morning and not look right? Maybe they have uh, funny colored hair, or and it's spiked, and they have weird body piercings and tattoos. Might you ask that person they need to leave? Maybe they don't belong here. When I was in seminary, I was at a church, the youth group. If someone came in that didn't look right, the parents would pull their children out. And what they're saying is, is that person that came in is, doesn't belong there. They're worthless. They need to go away. Maybe it would be some kind of a particular sin that someone struggles with. We don't like that kind of sin to be here. You know, they had that Supreme Court decision that just happened. Um, By the way, God has a Supreme Court that ruled on that a long time ago. So we don't need to be worried about that. But let's say someone was, I mean, even at Cornerstone, in the the ministry that we have um, that I'm overseeing, there's a a young lady that struggles with same-sex attraction. She wants to follow the Lord. She wants to honor God, but she struggles with some of those feelings. Might we tell her that she's worthless Might we tell her that she doesn't belong there? Might we tell her that she needs to go somewhere else? Because that's not acceptable here. So what we want to do is relate to people, not in a way of presumption, but in a way that Jesus relates to us, in a way of openness. You know, there was a a theologian in Africa in the early church whose name was St. Augustine, and he described a person in his natural state, a person who was a natural sinner, as a person he described, turned in on himself, turned in on himself. You might think about this when you wake up in the morning. Maybe you wake up and you say something like this, what about me? What about me? What about me? 
I have a a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and they wake up before I do, before I want to. And when they wake up in the morning, and if I'm waking up the way I do as as a natural sinner, I go, what about me? I don't want to wake up with you. I don't think about, well, how can I be a great father to my children? I think, I want to sleep another hour, go back to bed. When they start crying, you know, what about me? I don't want to get you Cheerios. I don't want to get you milk. I don't want to meet with you. I don't want to, what about me? What about me? What about me? And the way that Jesus relates by the power of the Spirit in our lives the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit, is it opens us up and we have a way of relating, we might call a way of openness. Way of openness. Jesus says this, Come to me, all. Come to me, all. Come to me, all, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus puts no qualification. He says all. He doesn't say if you look like this or do like this or whatever. And when we look out at people, we should look out and see them the way that Jesus sees them. And Jesus looks out into the world at every human being and says, that is a person made in my image. And I am calling to every person on this earth that I have made to myself. And anyone that would come, I will receive. And I will sup with him. And that's the way we relate to people, and the way that Jesus relates to us. The next encounter that Eli has, I'm sorry, that um, Hannah has, is with her husband, Elkanah. Now, this is an interesting one, because usually we read this, and we tend to see Elkanah as being a, a good guy. I remember talking to my father about this sermon, and he's like, but Elkanah's a good well, you know, It's not that Elkanah's a bad guy, but it's interesting on how he relates to Hannah. Now, Hannah is very upset, and it, she's not eating. She's not drinking, right? And Hannah comes to her, and he says this, Hannah, why do you not eat? Why do you not sleep? Why do you weep? Why is your heart sad? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? Now, how many people here have gone through something that was deeply grieving? Well, you don't have to raise your hand because that's probably everyone, right? Everybody in this life goes through things that cause us deep grief. Now, how helpful is it when someone else comes to you and says, stop feeling like that. Don't feel like that. Stop being sad. How would you feel if you went up to a woman that lost a child? We had someone recently that did that. And go up to her and say, you know, Val, why don't you get over it? You got three other kids. How would you feel talking to a spouse that loses a husband or a wife and say, well, you know, there's way more fish in the sea. Stop feeling like that. I'm your brother. I'm not enough for you. You don't need a husband. I'm not enough for you. It's not helpful when you tell someone just to stop feeling it. Emotions are not like light switches. I think we wish that they were, and that we could just tell someone, stop feeling like that, and I'll just turn the lights off like we turn the lights off in this room. But that's not the way that emotions work. And what had happened is Elkanah is looking at Hannah 
As we said before, we, we look at things through the way that we experience our own story, and Elkanah did not want a wife who was weeping. Elkanah did not want a wife who was sad. Elkanah did not want a wife who would not eat. And Elkanah wanted a wife that thought so much of him that he would be worth ten sons. And basically what Elkanah is doing is controlling. How do we do this with our spouses? Would you just stop feeling like that? Would you just get over it? Would you just be the spouse that I, I want you to be? We do this with our children. I wish you weren't running around so much. Why can't you just be a child that sits still and doesn't you know, do anything wrong? Why can't you just be what I want you to be? And we want to relate to people in the way that Jesus does. Jesus, it talks about in Philippians 2, says equality with God is not something to be grasped, but comes down out of heaven, takes on the form of a servant, and enters into our relationship. And we want to relate to people by entering into their lives and joining with them in the midst of their struggles. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. In other words, what you have to do is see someone else in the midst of what they're going through and it's as much as you can because it's not something you can do completely, but you put aside your own story, your own concerns, your own agenda is really the best word. Put aside your own agenda and you enter into the life and agenda of another person and you say, "What? you know what, it's not about me right now. It's about you and what's going on in your life. And this is not just for things that are bad. It's for things that are good. Anyone here go through it? You had this time of great rejoicing. You just got engaged or you just graduated or you just had a grandchild or you said something that's amazing and you want to celebrate with someone else and it's like you can't get anyone to join you. It's like I'm, I am so happy right now and everyone else is like that's great. You know I, just, I have to pay my taxes next week. So it's not just things that are bad, but it's also when things are bad, you don't want someone to come along and say, oh, just get over it, it's no big deal. So you you come along, you put your agenda aside, you enter into a relationship with another person, and you, you come alongside to join them. And what you don't do is come alongside to fix them. Men, we don't come alongside to fix others, right? Women say amen. We need to get you guys to talk more. This is good. We don't come alongside to fix. But what we do is we come alongside to point. We come alongside to be a witness. In fact, this way of relating we call the way of witness. A way of relating that's the way of witness. We come alongside another to stand next to them in the midst of their pain, not to fix them, not to tell them they need to be different, Not to tell them to stop feeling, but to come alongside them, lock arms with them, and point up and say, you know what? It's not about my story. It's about his story. Because there is a story. A capital T, capital H, capital E, the story. And that's the story of God. The creating, redeeming, healing, comforting God. 
And we don't have, what we need to learn, and what I'm still learning, is we don't have the power to fix other people. We don't have the power to, to make them or to, to you know, comfort them in an ultimate way. We really don't. I can't fix, I can't even fix myself. How can I fix someone else? But you know what? We know someone that can't. And his name is Jesus. I can't take someone's you know, frown and turn it upside down. You know, you realize that, so I'm a young pastor. I've only been a pastor for about a year. And you realize that people come in and you begin to learn about their life and they share with you their hurts and their pains and the things that they're struggling with. And you know what the resulting feeling is for me? Total powerlessness. You don't know what to say. I don't know what to say sometimes. And you're, you know, you're expected to have a magic word to fix. You ever have someone come to you and you feel like, I need to say the magic words right now and I just don't have them? Well, that's the truth of the matter. You don't. There aren't, there's not this magic quick fix thing. I'm learning that. But there is someone who is the great physician and the great healer and the great comforter, and we point to Jesus and say, grab hold of the cross. That will never let you down. People may leave you. Your children will fail you. Your friends will betray you. Your spouse will leave you, or what? But Jesus will never leave nor forsake you ever. Look to him. And when we do that, we come to the last way of relating. That is Hannah's relation with God. And that way of relating is the way of surrender. The way of surrender. Hannah comes before the Lord with all of her pain and all of her angst and all of her grief, and she says, you know what, God? I give it all to you. How quick are we to go to other people and just give our pain? We go to God. I give my pain to you, God, and you know what? If you do anything, I'll give it back to you. You give me a sign, I'll give it right back to you. And when we give our lives to God, I'll guarantee this to you. If you give your life to God, he will do amazing things with your life. Hannah comes before the Lord, gives her life to God, all of her pain. And what's the result of that? She has a son. And who was that son? Samuel. The greatest judge in the nation of Israel who grew up to anoint the man who was called the man after God's own heart, King David, such that Jesus himself was called a son of David because Hannah comes before God and gives her pain and all of her life to him. And we make a mistake because oftentimes we think that we've done that already. Well, look, pastor, I've already done that. Look, it's called, you know, conversion. I gave my life to Christ 10 years ago, got the card, it's in my pocket, I got the date, I'm good. Don't worry about me. This is not something that we do just one time. This is something that we look back to a prior date and say, been there, done that. This is something that you and I have to do every day. Every day. 
You come before the Lord and you say, today, God, today, God, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. I give you my life every day. I surrender my life today. It doesn't count for tomorrow. It counts for today. And when I wake up tomorrow, I'll say, you know what, Lord? I surrender my life today. I give you my pains today. That's why you can say, don't worry about tomorrow, because you're giving your life to God today. And that tomorrow is in the hands of the Lord. But today, you give your life to God, which is why God says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. Just to end on this final thought. Life is a journey. And it's a journey towards something. Journeys, you're, you're going somewhere, right? If you're standing still, it's not a journey. So life is a journey. You're heading in a direction. When you give your life to God and surrender, you are headed in a direction of life and blessing. You're heading in a direction where you're giving your life to something where it's going to matter, not just for to now, not just for today, but for eternity. You know, people talk about heaven and hell like it's something that you arrive at when you die. So, you know, boom, you're dead. You're either in one place or the other. I, I would challenge that a little bit. I say that heaven and hell are journeys that we're headed towards right now. If you're in a, in a journey towards God, in a journey towards heaven with God, you're experiencing that reality now. That's why it says you can be joyous in all circumstances. That's why it says you can... Consider it all joy when you're going through various trials because you're headed, you, you have the blessings of heaven beginning to be given to you now and as you become more and more in relationship with God, you experience more in that and so finally you're with him. You see how it's a journey, right? It's a process. I'm coming more and closer to God and I'm, I'm becoming more like him and I'm coming more and more joy and more and more blessing and then, oh, here, now I'm in his presence. But there's an opposite side to that. If you walk away from God, if you move away from him, if you say, I don't want to surrender my life to God. I don't want to give my life. I'm, I'm fine with my own story, Pastor. It is about me, okay? Look, I've got to walk out, watch out for me and my own. To thine own self be true, okay? I'm going to do it my way, like Frank Sinatra. That reality is something that you're on a journey on right now. And you are moving further and further and further away from God. And so finally, you're so far away from him that he not, he's not around at all. And that journey starts now. And some people here may be on that path right now. You're on a path away from God. And God is saying, okay, you don't want me? Go ahead. But one day you're going to wake up and I'm not going to be there at all. You know what that's called? That's called hell. Where God is not there at all. But there is another way. God says, if you lose your life, you will find it. And it'll be time of... a life of blessing, not just for now, but forever. So some people here need to see people and realize that there's more than just the 15% that you're seeing on the surface, that there is a whole lot more underneath. We need to stop, some people here, myself too, need to stop presuming on people and become much more open to seeing the way that people, to see people the way that Jesus sees them. Some other people need to 
journey alongside and join with the person that's right next to you that you haven't been doing that with for a long time. Elkanah knew what Hannah's pain was. He just wasn't entering into it. And maybe for some people here, you need to be entering into the life of someone else right next to you or someone that you need to call. Maybe a parent or a brother or a sister or something. But I tell all of us here, myself first, need to be surrendering our lives to God, giving him all of ourselves so that it would be true to say that we would lose our life. And by losing it, we will find it. And if we decide we want to find our own life, Jesus tells us, we will lose it. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way in Christ Jesus that we can come back to you. And thank you that when we surrender ourselves, you will by no means turn us away, that you are a God who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And I pray for each person here, myself first, Holy Spirit, move us, move us to enter into relationship with others in the way that you have entered into relationship with us. We pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.